after he was shot, they found the contents of his pockets to be two pairs of glasses, a watch fob, a pocket knife, a brown leather wallet with $5 in it, and a series of newspaper clippings. The clippings were of interest to historians because of what they contained. The majority of these clippings were positive. They were painting this particular person in a positive light. Now, he had, six months previous to this, won an election. He's carrying these around, these positive portraits of himself. The other interesting thing is that historians don't believe that he was carrying them out of some kind of ego. Like, wow, look at how great I am. I'm going to carry these around. But instead, he was carrying them because he needed encouragement. That he needed to see that there were people who believed in him. That he needed something close to him to encourage him. Now, this is a guy that won an election. He at least knows some people like him, right? Or at least like him more than the person he ran against. But he carried these with him. He died on April 15th, 1865. He was shot on April 14th, 1865. Abraham Lincoln. He's considered by the majority of historians to be the greatest president we've had. He just won a second term. And he is still carrying around newspaper clippings, reminding him, encouraging him that He's good at something. He's worth something. He stands for the right thing. He, can I just tell you, sometimes I need some newspaper clippings. Now, some of them need to be written about me first, but, but I need some newspaper clippings. Like, there are times that I, I just need some encouragement. Like, I need to know that, that what I'm doing matters. When I'm going through something hard, I'm struggling through something, I need to know that like somebody's walking with me, somebody's helping me up, they're, they're, they're assisting me. I need the encouragement. And I would guess that maybe you do too. That probably everybody in this room could use a few newspaper clippings. That as we go through the hard things in life, we need encouragement. That it is a universal need. And yet it raises an issue for me. I think we need it even though we're part of the kingdom of God. And somehow I think that should be different. Like I think now that I'm following Christ, now that I'm part of his kingdom... Shouldn't some of these things be different? 
And here's how it works out in my head. When I'm struggling, I begin to ask the questions like, is it my sin? Am I doing something wrong? Is that why I have to go through this? Or is God for some reason upset? He's being silent. Why isn't God responding to this? But I start to go through all of these things because this shouldn't be in the kingdom of God. We should not have to go through these things. Like, we should have more happiness and more satisfaction and more fulfillment and less struggles. And God should be doing this and this. It should be different, I think, in my head because I'm part of the kingdom of God. But my experience tells me, even as part of the kingdom of God, I still need encouragement. I still need to be built up. This morning, we're going to take a look at the transfiguration. Isn't that a great word? It, it's Transfiguration Sunday, the final Sunday before the Lenten season begins. And I believe that the whole thing was both done and recorded, that the people of God might be encouraged, that their faith might be fortified. I believe that's why we have it. And I want to answer two questions. Number one, why in the kingdom of God do we still need encouragement? Why is it not like I think it's supposed to be? And number two, how is it that this passage offers that encouragement? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we prepare to look at this truly amazing passage... And as we prepare our hearts for the Lenten season, Lord, will you speak to us this morning by your Spirit? I can imagine that everybody here, for one reason or another, could use some encouragement. That our struggles, that our trials, that maybe we have some doubt about our worth, that we could use some encouragement. Lord, will you use this passage to teach us more about your kingdom and to encourage us in our walk with you? Let us be open to your work, that we might live kingdom-first lives. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Would you open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 9? Luke chapter 9. We are starting in verse 28 of Luke chapter 9. Why, even as part of the kingdom of God, even as followers of Jesus Christ, filled with the Spirit, why do we still need encouragement? Verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. About a week after he said some other things that we will mention later on in the sermon, he goes up on a mountain. And this is not abnormal. A couple of different times, Jesus leaves to go pray. And specifically, it mentions he goes up onto a mountain. This time, he takes three disciples with him, Peter, James, and John. And they go up to pray together. Verse 29. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. And his clothing became dazzling white. Now, you can just... 
try to imagine. We don't know exactly what happened to his face, but all of him alters. And he is dazzling. He is brilliant. He is transcendent. You're getting a picture of glory in him. In fact, just before this passage in verse 27, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And there's a lot of scholarly debate about what that means. But one very good thing that it means is what we're seeing right now. They are glimpsing the kingdom in its fullness. They're glimpsing the glory of God as, as Jesus has changed. Verse, 20, uh, verse 30. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory. And there's that, that word. They look like him. They're also bright. They are shining. There's a dazzling about them. They appeared in glory, and they spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, what we find out is up to this point, right, we know that Jesus can pray. I mean, for a long time. He goes up on a mountain one time and prays all night. Right, we don't know how long he's been praying, but he's been praying long enough that the three guys he brought with him have fallen asleep. We'll find that out as we keep reading. Which, honestly, in a way, makes me feel a little bit good. Like, I screw up a lot, but I can say this. I have never been put to sleep by Jesus praying. That's pretty good, I guess. We're going to see them in a moment, but, but they've fallen asleep. Jesus, in the midst of praying, has started this dazzling, showing his glory. And here comes Moses and Elijah, also in glory, and they start talking to him. And they are talking about his departure. This word in Greek is exodus. And it's the same word in the Old Testament when it is in Greek that refers to the exodus. Very particular word. They're talking to him about his exodus. In order to answer my question, I want to answer another one. The question is, what in the world are Moses and Elijah doing here? And, and there, honestly, there are a number of different ideas about what they're doing. And I think all of them are pretty good because we're all speculating. Right? And basically, they go along the lines of something like this. Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. And so you have the whole Old Testament. And there they are with Jesus, who is the new covenant. Right? And you've got variations on that. That they symbolically represent something. I think that's probably all true. But I want to talk to the story. I don't think they showed up and Jesus went, oh good, there's the law and there's the prophets. And I got this now. I think there's something else going on. And I don't think that it was for the sake of the disciples because they're asleep at this point. And they are talking very specifically about something with Jesus. Hey, here's what I do know. Jesus has just revealed to his disciples for the first time that he's going to be betrayed and killed. It just happens in this chapter. It's the first time he tells them this. He had gone up on a mountain. He prayed. And then he told the disciples, hey, tell me who people say I am. And he said, yes, I am the Christ, Peter, as you said I am. 
but I'm going to be betrayed and I'm going to die. And then he said to them, you all have to take up your cross and follow if you want to be my disciples. Have you ever thought about how hard it was for Jesus to walk this path? You see, I think it's easy to think, well, he's the son of God. He's fully God. I mean, this is like, he could do this. But that is not the biblical portrait of what he went through. Yes, he is fully God and fully man, but he is fully man. And as you study what he goes through, it is a challenge. He is going to be beaten, mocked, betrayed by people he loves, shamed, and crucified. In the book of Hebrews, the author says that he offered up loud cries and with tears during his life on earth. That he learned obedience through what he suffered. He suffered. And if you want to know how much he suffered, just look at the garden. Jesus is coming to the culmination of his entire life in the garden. And as he is there, he says to the Father, If there can be another way, can we do it? May this cup pass from me. And then as the father tells him no, he says, your will be done. But he is sweating drops of blood. This is so bad. And then he will get to the cross and on the cross he will say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm not sure we understand how much he went through, how hard this was. Let me tell you what I think Moses and Elijah were doing on that mountain as they were talking to him about his exodus, about his death. I think they were encouraging him. I think they were trying to build him up. I think they were there to talk. And by the way, it's a conversation. In Greek, that word means to converse. It's not just one party telling the other party something. That these two great men who are in glory come back and they begin to have a conversation with Jesus about what he's going to suffer. And I believe they're there to encourage him. Now, here's what I want to say about the kingdom because up to this point, even if that's a little bit like, oh wow, okay, I've not really heard that. I don't know that. Yes, I know he suffered. Yes, I know it's hard. The nature of the kingdom of God is suffering and sacrifice. The kingdom is built on the cross, not on conquest. The kingdom is built not on might and power as we think, but on the meekness of the Son of God. The kingdom was built on sacrifice. Now, I think we all know that too, right? I mean, you've read the Gospels. You see that. You see how many times Jesus talks about being humble. You see all this. You see him washing his disciples' feet. That's not what a king does. But this is what I don't know that we fully grasp. That whole pattern of suffering to glory, that's not just his path. That is the path of the kingdom. If you are in the kingdom of God, this side of glory... 
Suffering and sacrifice are not aberrations. They are the expectation of the kingdom. And just so you think, if in case you think, you know, I'm, he's going way too far with this. I just want to read to you a couple, a handful. Just hear these passages. Acts chapter 5, verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer. Dishonor for the name. Romans eight sixteen, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel. I can go on and on and on. There are so many New Testament passages when they are talking about the kingdom and they're talking about Christ, that there is a suffering with him. That that's, that's actually expected. That's part of it. That's part of going to the kingdom of God, to glory. And it's why you get things like this. Right? And you've heard this before. I know you have. And, and you may have thought of, I thought, as I thought, this is just, this is ridiculous if you take this seriously. Here's James. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Seriously? I'm supposed to count my various trials as joy? Why? Because that is the way that the kingdom builds the disciples. Because what he goes on to say is the testing of your faith develops things. It's what Paul talks about in Romans 5. Same kind of thing. Rejoicing in persecution and suffering because it builds us in the kingdom. That the very nature of the kingdom of God is to go from sacrifice and suffering to glory. Now, hear me correctly. You're not earning glory by that. Please don't hear me say that if you don't suffer in the kingdom of God, you'll never make glory. That, that's not the point. Christ did everything. You do nothing when it comes to salvation, but believe in him. But when you're in the kingdom, the way that the kingdom works is the same way that he took his path to bring it in. Suffering to glory. That's the path. It is the very nature of the kingdom. And do you know what that means? When you go through a trial... There may be nothing wrong with you. You may just be operating within the kingdom of God. That's part of it. When you are suffering, when you make sacrifices, that is part of being in the kingdom of God. It is its nature. And there's nothing wrong with it. Beethoven actually learned to play on an organ. It was his primary instrument. Beethoven at the age of 10 fell in love with it. He loved its power. I mean, the organ, if you've ever been especially into a large church or a large auditorium and you've heard that organ, when it plays, there's those low notes and you feel it like vibrate in your chest. He fell in love with that. Beethoven loved the organ. And as he's playing, he memorized all of Bach's organ pieces. 
However, most people in their homes didn't have organs at this point. They had pianos. And so Beethoven would play on pianos. And at one point, he is playing a Mozart concerto on the piano. And there's a description of a friend of his who was to turn pages while he was playing. Beethoven played a piano as if it were an organ. And he tried to wrench from it all of the power of an organ. Here's the description that his friend gave of him playing the piano. He asked me to turn pages for him, but I was mostly occupied in wrenching strings out of the piano that had snapped while hammers got stuck among the broken strings. Beethoven insisted on finishing the concerto, and so back and forth I kept leaping, jerking a string out, disentangling a hammer, turning a page. I worked much harder than Beethoven. (laughs) And here's the thing. If you had looked at that piano afterwards, you'd have thought, boy, that was a poorly made piano. I mean, it was a mess. These strings are all broken and the hammers are messed up. And like that, that's a messed up piano. No, that was a messed up Beethoven. He played that piano in a way that the nature of the piano could not handle. There was nothing wrong with that piano. There is nothing wrong if you are suffering in the kingdom of God. There is nothing wrong if you are going through a trial in the kingdom of God. There is nothing wrong if you are making a sacrifice in the kingdom of God. That is actually part of the nature of the kingdom of God. And it's the reason that we need encouragement. Because here's what I promise you. This side of glory, it is never going to be easy. And we can spend all of our time fighting it. We can spend our time trying to figure out, okay, who do I blame for this? How do I get out of this? When is God finally going to make me happy again? Or we can be radically dependent on our God and recognize that this is actually part of the kingdom. This is the means by which God grows his people. And we can live into it. So, How does he encourage? Go back into your text. What ways does he encourage them? See, the disciples don't fully get it yet. As much as Jesus does, and I would even say this. We've talked about this before. Luke in particular talks about Jesus growing in wisdom. I can't imagine that the whole path he's taken, like from the moment he was born, he knew it all. That through prayer with the Father, even as he goes up on the mountain and he prays for a night and then he chooses the twelve, that some of this is being revealed to him as he goes along. He is learning and growing. He is fully human. And I think he needed encouragement, but his disciples, they don't fully get this yet, but they're going to. I mean, this is going to hit them smack in the face. But right now, they start getting encouragement. Here it is. Verse 33. And as the men were parting from him, oh, I'm sorry, uh, verse 32. Now, Peter and those who were with him 
were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Okay, there are two conversations that I really wish I could have been a part of in Scripture. One of them is the Emmaus Road, where Jesus, you know, after his resurrection, he's talking to two disciples and he does a Bible study all through the Old Testament. Golly, what it would have been like to walk on that road and hear him explain it. And this one right here. Whatever it was that was actually going on, all of the words between Elijah and Moses, and could you imagine poor Peter? He wakes up and he hears the very end of it. All crud. I mean, talk about missing a conversation. That is one you want to hear. But the text does say he sees their glory. He sees their glory. Here is part of the encouragement for them. And for us, there is an end to our struggle. There's an end to the sacrifice. There's an end to the pain. There really is an end. And right here, they and we are getting a glimpse of it. That glory is real. That that whole thing in Revelation where there's no more tears and no more pain and disease, that's real. That this morning, if you've got a few aches and pains in your knees and your back and your sights going, and I know there are a few of you that have spouses that are sick, they're not here because they're sick, glory is coming. That's part of the encouragement. My wife will say to me, she'll say, I can suffer through a lot as long as I can see there's an end. But when there's no end, it's really hard to go through it. It's kind of like when you go on a long journey and you're thinking halfway through, oh my goodness, I'm so tired of being in the car. But then you go, all right, Disneyland is eight hours away. And there's something that, okay, I could do this because there's an end. There is an end. There is glory coming. And not only that end, but there's the reason they keep saying rejoice in the suffering because it produces something. Do you know that our trials can make us better disciples in a way that our joys probably never can? Our trials are the things that make us go, God, I need you. God, I am open. God, help me. They turn us to God in ways that our joys tend not to. Even that can be an end goal. That as we're going through them, we can go, I know this is hard, but I know God is working in me. Keep going. The end gives us hope. Number two, verse 33. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. And I get the picture that Peter is kind of, um, it's like when you go on a retreat and you have this amazing experience and you go, I don't want this to end. Like, I want to stay on the mountaintop. I think Peter is going, oh, wow. I mean, this is, this is glory and it's, and it's Moses and it's Elijah. And it's like, no, let's make tents. Like, let's stay here. Let's keep this going. Which I don't blame him. Let us make three tents. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said. He's, he's still a little sleepy. He doesn't totally get what's going on. He's waking up going, wow. Doesn't quite know what he's saying. Um, here's my second thing for encouragement. 
you're not alone in your struggle. And there are two ways you're not alone. Number one, these guys, they're actually part of what we're a part of. Moses and Elijah, everybody who's gone before us, they're a part of it. They're in glory. We are a part of something bigger than us. You get to think at all times as a believer, I'm part of this massive thing that God is doing. I am not the only one suffering. I'm not the only one that's gone through this. Others know it. Others have been through it. But even more than that, keep going. Verse 35, uh, verse 34. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. I want to say something that is so cliche. God is with you. How many times have you heard that? Maybe bumper stickers have you seen, t-shirts you've seen, and you're kind of like, okay, let's move on to the next point. Um, that, that just doesn't do much for me. Um, I, I want to emphasize something that I don't, again, I'm not sure we quite grasp it. You see, here's what I think Peter wanted. Peter wanted that amazing moment where God was so present and so real that there could be no doubt. He wanted that moment to just go on. And do you blame him? I mean, all of us want that moment, right? It's part of what we're looking forward to. But that's not the way we live. But that doesn't mean God's not with us. See, here's what I think. This is what I think. Maybe you don't. I tend to think that if God's not making it okay, God's not with me. Because if he was with me, he'd be making it okay. I think if God's not fixing the problem, God's not actually with me. Because if he were, he'd be making it okay. I think that if I'm not feeling God, he's not with me. But that's not what it says. And when Jesus says, I will be with you always until the end of the age, he doesn't mean you are always going to feel my presence 24 hours a day, and it's always going to make you feel better. And he doesn't mean all of your problems are going to go away. He means exactly what he says. I'm with you. I'm walking with you through it. And this is the best image I think I can give, and there's probably, and I know there's better ones. Um, this is my book of common prayer. And the other day, somebody was looking at it, and they said, You're, it looks worn. Um, and it is. I mean, the, the bind's kind of messed up. There's scratches all over it. It's a worn book. It's been used a lot. But this particular book, this book of common prayer, this one right here, I only use it for one thing. Hospital visits. You know how sad that is? That it's this worn? This book I only use when I'm visiting people that, and, and I shouldn't say, actually, it's births too. So sometimes they're happy things. But it's only to go to the hospital is what this book is for. And here's the thing, when you go to the hospital and you go into a room with people who are suffering, I want to tell you what I've heard over and over again at the end of that visit. People are giving me hugs and they're going, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for being with us. I haven't done anything. I have not changed their circumstance. The person that was laying in the bed dying is still laying in the bed dying. 
I didn't change that. I didn't make it easier. I didn't make it shorter. And in fact, one time, and it's only happened one time, one time, like I sometimes would just sit with families and I'll just sit there. And one time I went back and I sat and there are four people and they're around the bed. They walked out of the room. I think they forgot I was there. I'm just sitting there and they left. And I'm going, I'm not sure what to do at this point. Like, so I just, I just sat there thinking at some point they'll come back. And they did. But here's when they came back. Another family member had showed up and it said, can we go in and pray? And apparently somebody said, yeah, let me find the priest. Oh, and they went back in. They're like, we're so sorry. They forgot just for a moment, which I don't blame them. They're in the midst of a grief and I'm just sitting over there quietly, not... I was in the room the entire time, even when they forgot, even when they didn't know it, even when I wasn't holding their hand. And the way that we minister to people, it's, it's everything from I'm praying with you to I'm just sitting in a room. But at that moment, we get it. This person is with me. God is with you all the time. Everything you're going through, God is with you. But it's not always going to change it all. Fix it. Make it all go away. But that's not his promise. It's I'm with you. And lastly, to finish off this passage. Verse 35, and a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Brothers and sisters, we have direction through our struggles and our trials. We are to listen to Christ. We're to listen to the word. We actually have direction to walk through these trials. And I love the response that they give. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone and they kept silent. They kept silent. Sometimes in the midst of our struggles, the best thing we can do is go, glory is coming. God is with me. And I'm going to follow instead of all of the words that we have of what did I do wrong? Why is this happening to me? God, why aren't you getting me out of this? God, why is this messed up? Because the nature of the kingdom is we're going to have sacrifice and suffering and trials as we move towards glory. But we can be encouraged knowing, knowing there is glory at the end. Knowing God is with us. And knowing that he gives us a path, we have a path to walk these trials. Everybody needs encouragement. Everybody. Some of us more than others at different times, but we all need it. It's kind of interesting that, interesting, what a terrible choice of words for that. I was going to say it's kind of interesting that Abraham Lincoln was shot. Um, That's a terrible way of putting that. Um, but it's, it is interesting that he is shot on April 14th and on April 9th, that's when Lee surrendered. That's essentially the turning point. I mean, the war wasn't quite done, but it was basically done. This was a moment for Lincoln to let down after all these years of war, all these years. In fact, his second reelection, 10 weeks 
before the election, he wrote to himself that he didn't think he'd get reelected. Things were looking so bad. But he got reelected, the war had been won, and he's having a letdown. And in the midst of the letdown, he is shocked. Here's the thing. All around you, there are people that are going through things. All around you, there are people that are hurting, that are suffering, that are going through trials. All around you are people that have these ups and downs. I guarantee you there's always going to be a down. We need each other. We need to encourage each other, to pray for each other, to notice each other, to give a hug to one another. And here's the thing. Quite a few of us, me included, um, we're kind of standoffish a little bit. Um, We're kind of uh, introverted. We're not the people that are going to walk up to you necessarily. You need to walk up to us if you're the extrovert. And even if you're not, we need you at some point to go. I'm going to see how this person is doing. We need each other to walk in the kingdom. I don't think it's a surprise that Jesus took three of them up on the mountain and not just Peter. We need each other. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your kingdom. Thank you for your son who would walk this path of sacrifice and suffering, who would go through so much for us to to give us eternal life, to allow us to be citizens of your kingdom, to know you for eternity. Lord, help us to recognize the nature of a kingdom that is built on the cross that we too must carry our cross. That it was never meant to be easy. But it will be holy. It will be fulfilling. It will be transformative. Lord, help us to hold on as we walk this path and we trust in you. And help us to encourage each other. In Jesus' holy name, amen.